If you have your copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn to the book of Genesis. We're looking at Genesis chapter 4 this morning, and we are finishing up this chapter as we resume our study through this glorious first book of Scripture and the first uh, part of Revelation that we have in our Bibles. And we're looking at Genesis 4, beginning in verse 17, and we're going to read down to verse 26. And you'll find that on page 4 if you're using the church Bible. And actually, for the sake of context, I'm going to back up, and I am going to begin in verse 13 and read down to verse 26, and then we'll look at 17 through 26 together. Genesis 4, 17 through 26. And again, let me pray and ask the Lord to be present with us as we come to the reading and the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you again that you cause us to sit at the feet of your Son and to listen to his word. And We pray, our God, that you would accomplish all your purposes in us this morning. We pray that you would instruct us, that you would renew our minds and our hearts and our wills and our emotions. We pray that we would not know just the word, but that we would know the power of the gospel this morning. We pray that you would deepen our understanding of you, that we would grow in our knowledge of each member of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray especially that you would fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Genesis 4, beginning back in verse 13. And Cain has killed Abel. God has come and has confronted Cain. Cain has hardened his heart in anger and pride. He has bucked up against the Lord. He has uh, fallen into self-pity. We saw that last time, the progression In Cain's sin, Cain is unrepentant, and no matter how often the Lord has come to Cain, no matter how often the Lord has sought to bring Cain to repentance, humanly speaking, Cain is just going deeper and deeper and deeper into rebellion and revealing to us the depravity of hearts like ours by nature. And now we read in verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is is greater than I can bear. Remember the Lord said that he would be a fugitive and a vagabond, that he would be a wanderer, a nomad. And he says, Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of that city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah and the name of the other Zillah. Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the father, he was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Naama. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice, ye wives of Lamech, listen. To what I say, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's vengeance is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God 
has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I don't know if you have traveled much, but one of the things that I find most interesting in my travels is um, when I come across those twin cities that are not that far apart. Um, The times I've been in Scotland, I've been amazed at how close in proximity the city of Glasgow is to Edinburgh. They are 45 minutes away. You wonder, how did they not join together? We have in the United States cities like that. We have Auburn and Opelika. We have Minneapolis and St. Paul. We have twin cities that are right next to each other, and somehow they are distant and distinct from each other, especially in Scotland. If you ever get a chance to go to Glasgow, and one of the most wonderful things is to take one of those cab rides in Glasgow and to start asking the taxi drivers about Edinburgh and the jokes and the scorn and the derision, and it's real, and, and there's competition, and they don't like each other. Glaswegians do not like citizens of Edinburgh, and they are right next door to each other, and Edinburgh is a vastly better city in my humble and very accurate opinion. It is much more beautiful than Glasgow, and yet the Glaswegians are proud, and they can't stand the city of Edinburgh and its citizens. And as I've thought about cities over the years, cities are a phenomenon. They are very interesting social situations. They are fascinating sociological ideas. There's a book highly recommend by a guy named Jacques Alul called The Meaning of the City. It's profound. And what Alul does is he starts where we're at this morning. He starts in Genesis 4. He begins with that first city that we read about. He begins with the city of man. He begins by pointing out the nuances and the psychology and the importance of what's going on in Genesis 4 and why Cain is building the first city known in civilization. And then As we'll see this morning, there's another city. You might say, wait, I didn't read about another city. There's another city being built, and that's the city of God. You have in this passage two cities. You have the city of man, and you have the city of God. And these two cities are set in stark contrast. And the rest of the Bible is about these two cities. The rest of the Bible is an unpacking, whether it's Egypt or Babylon or Jerusalem or finally that heavenly city. The rest of the Bible is a theology, a tale of two cities. And all of our experiences are some way or another bound up in our citizenship in one of those two cities. And notice that the Lord has now come to Cain. He has, he has confronted Cain over the bloodshed. Very interesting. A friend of mine pointed out to me, I wish he had done this weeks before I preached the sermon on Cain killing Abel, but God had asked for that blood sacrifice. He had asked for that lamb that pointed forward to Jesus, the the lamb of God and the bloodshed. And Cain in self-righteousness and pride came and he brought of his own hands. And then when God confronted him and said, why are you cast down? Why are you angry? If you do good, will you not be accepted? And what does Cain do? Cain essentially says, you want blood, I'll give you blood. And he sheds the blood of his brother. He says, you want blood? I won't give you the blood that you want. I'll give you the blood I want to give you. And he sheds his brother's blood, and God comes, and he interrogates, and he says, the voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And Cain then 
withdraws and he becomes more angry and more proud and, and arrogant toward the Lord in his approach. He becomes arrogant. Can you imagine the arrogance of fallen humanity, our arrogance that we would speak to the almighty God the way that Cain did, full of pride and self-defensiveness and anger and bitterness and self-righteousness. And so God tells Cain that as a result of what he did, the ground would no longer yield its, its fruit for him. God had already cursed the ground. Man had come out of the ground. Man had rebelled against his maker. The ground had rebelled against its maker, and God had cursed the ground and thorns and thistles, and now it would be toilsome and burdensome, and now Cain being driven further out, Adam and Eve already cast into the wilderness. Now Cain further out east of Eden, the scripture says, away from that garden temple. And now the ground would even be more burdensome for Cain. And he would be a vagabond. He would be a wanderer. He would be a nomad. He would be part of the wilderness. He would be restless. His life would be a life of wandering and restlessness, a life of isolation, a life of barrenness, a life cast out, worst of all, from the blessing of the special, felt, and known presence of God. And notice that as God is unpacking the consequences on Cain, and one of the interesting things is why doesn't God wipe Cain out? And we've seen one of the reasons is he's always constantly still giving him time to repent, still giving him those opportunities to repent. He's still bearing long with him, and yet there's a multitude of other reasons. And the Lord says to Cain in verse 14, um, in verse 15, I'm sorry, not so when Cain complains that he's going to be a fugitive and a wanderer and that others are going to kill him. Notice verse 15, the Lord said to him, not so if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. Now this is very important. God is setting up the first government. God, by his common grace, is setting up the first government. He is saying, if anyone acts as Cain acted toward Cain, that, the, the, that God would institute a civil society in which the sword would be executed. You know, the city and the idea of society is so complex, and um, you have the idea of helping. You have the idea of, of benefiting each other. You have the idea of helping to take away that burden from the ground, don't we? We have the benefit of living in community and in fellowship with others and, and having the experiences and the joys shared that we never should have had after the fall. We all should have been like Cain. We all should have been isolated and cast out into outer darkness. We all should have been driven away and made to try to till the, the cursed ground on our own. And yet God, in his common grace, is organizing a civil society. And the striking thing, the thing that comes to the forefront is not the fellowship or the mutual benefit of working the ground together and sharing resources, the thing that comes to the forefront is that God has instituted government because it would not bear the sword in vain, that the government would be that which God invested with the power to punish evil and to reward good. This is what the apostles saying. God has now instituted government by common grace. He has said, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. He doesn't say, I will take vengeance on him. He says, vengeance will be. And now you may say, who are all these other people who are going to take vengeance? Adam and Eve had lots of kids. They lived 900 years. Why did they live 900 years? So they could have lots of kids. How could that be? I don't know. It's true. 
I love when unbelievers always, who did Cain marry? His sister. That's wrong now. That's all they had. It wasn't wrong then. You wouldn't have thought it was wrong then. You wouldn't. And yet God is organizing by his common grace a society. Now, there's this question, why? And, and actually, there's, there's a lot of irony in this text because we'll see in a minute that um, Cain hates what God's doing because Cain is not going to benefit. If somebody kills Cain, how's Cain going to benefit from that vengeance? He's going to be dead. <laughs> he doesn't like that. He doesn't like God's arrangement. He doesn't like that God says, you know what, Cain? It'll be all right. If somebody kills you, I'll take care of it. It's not good for Cain. Cain, Cain is proud. Cain wants what Cain wants. Cain wants all the comforts of life. And yet, God in his in his sort of mercy and justice, is sparing Cain, and he is, he is setting up this civil society. Now, I think on an, another hand, God is also um, forcing, to Cain to, forcing Cain to live with what he did. Because in Genesis 9, God is going to institute the death penalty. It's very clear. Whoever sheds man's blood, by him, by man shall his blood be shed. In a sense, God's already doing that with the institution of civil government here that the vengeance on whoever kills Cain sevenfold. And yet God is also, in a sense, causing Cain to live with the reality, the guilty conscience. Cain could never get rid of that guilty conscience. Think about it. He would have to wander his whole life with a guilty, gnawing conscience over what he had done and over his unrepentance and over his rejection of God. God is, in a sense, punishing Cain with allowing him to live longer in this world. And yet there's common grace. And if you were Cain, you should have seen the goodness of the Lord. You should have said, what sort of God is this? He's a just God. He's a holy God. He's a God that cannot tolerate evil. He is a God of life and light and truth. He is a God of uprightness. There's no darkness in him at all. He is a God of love. He is a God of wisdom. He is a God of goodness. And even in how he's dealing with me, he is manifesting some of that goodness. Isn't that remarkable? That, he, that the Lord continues to manifest his goodness even to the reprobate, even to those who will never believe the gospel, to those who will never come to Christ, to those who will never repent of their sins. I had a friend, and it's a striking thought. He actually is walking away from the Lord at present, which is a very heartbreaking thought. But one time my friend said to me, you know, the goodness of the Lord is seen in that he would even give a hard-hearted, unrepentant sinner a glass of water on his deathbed before sending him to hell. It's a sobering thought. It's a thought you may not like. It's a thought that's true. It's a thought that reveals how good our God is in this world. And that goodness, Paul will say, is meant to lead us to repentance. Every sip of water, every breath of air, every rainstorm, every every ray of light, every taste of food, every laugh, every joy, every smile, it's all meant to bring us to repentance. It's all meant for us to say, how can I not turn back to this God who has loved me and been so good to me? How can I not embrace his salvation in Jesus? How can I not ask him for the forgiveness of our sins? And yet, 
Cain doesn't do that. What does Cain do? Cain takes the idea of the city. Cain takes the idea of what God is doing and preserving, and Cain perverts it. And Cain, in his depravity and his pride, and then Cain's descendants after him, in their depravity and their pride, they pervert the idea of what God is doing by common grace. This is very, very, very telling. Notice. Notice that we're told in verse 17, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. Now, John Calvin has an interesting thought. He actually says that Cain is, is running from God. He's supposed to be a nomad. He's supposed to be a wanderer. He's supposed to feel the bitterness of what's happened and what he's done. And instead, he's trying to find comfort, and he's trying to find peace, and he's trying to find it in, in procreation. He's trying to find it in having children. He knows his wife. He has children, and he has a son named Enoch. And notice what Moses tells us. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch, the most high-handed act of rebellion that Cain ever did after killing Abel was to build a city. He was not to know fellowship. He was not to know comfort. He was not to know protection. He essentially said to God, I don't care that you've put a mark on me. I don't care that you said you'll avenge my death sevenfold. I will protect myself. I will take my life into my own hands. That is what Cain's doing. I will take my life into my own hands. I will build my fortress I will build a city. I hate what you have said. I don't believe what you have said. I will not return to you. I will decide for myself how I will be secure and protected and happy. And it is an act of pride and rebellion. Um, one writer actually says, I, I think this is, um, this is amazing. Jacques Alul says, Cain has built a city. For God's Eden, he substitutes his own. For the goal given to his life by God, he substitutes a goal chosen by himself just as he substituted his own security for God's. Cain is building the first man-made city. It's very interesting. His son's name actually, um, his son's name carries with it the idea of initiation or dedication. That What he's saying is, I will dedicate a city to my brilliance. I will dedicate a city to man. I will dedicate a city to myself and to my greatness. I will name this after my son whom I have named initiation. And there is this play in the Hebrew. There's a play off of the idea of God creating in Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the Hebrew word for, for Enoch, which is initiation, and what Cain is essentially saying is, I will restart humanity. He's actually saying, forget about creation. I will build civilization. I will restart humanity. And you know, we don't even have to read Genesis 4. You can say this is, I don't think this is historical. It is. You can say I don't, I, it's ideological. You can say it's poetic, mythological, you can say whatever you want to say, but you know, you know that this is what men have been doing since the first time that Cain did that. They've been saying, we will build a city for ourselves. We will secure ourselves. We will plant for ourselves a civilization. We will take dominion. Isn't it interesting? God had said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, have dominion. Now Cain's doing it for selfish purposes rebelling, 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 and doing it for himself. Notice that as 
Cain continues the perversion of the city, even though God had put this mark on Cain and assured him that if he were killed, his death would be avenged. Notice that there's this genealogy now. And, and you know, you wonder, at the outset, you say, why, why, why mention Cain's genealogy? Very interesting aside, the Bible is a book of genealogies, and all those genealogies generally, most of the ones that you read in Chronicles and elsewhere, lead to Jesus. It's redemptive historical. And Cain's genealogy finds no place in the book of First Chronicles. Isn't that fascinating? God obliterates the memory of Cain and his descendants. He lets them develop. He lets them, in their pride and arrogance, build the city that they're trying to build and, and name that city after his son, after that one made in his own image, in his likeness, in the likeness of Cain, to take dominion and to, to populate in his image and in his likeness. And then notice that as the genealogy unfolds, we're told these very interesting little facts. The first is in verse 19. Enoch had Irad and Mahujael, and Mahujael had Methushael, and then Methushael had Lamech. And Lamech, we're told, had two wives. He's the first polygamist. You see the perversion that it's not only Rebellion against God in city structure, in society, in civilization, in seeking for security. It's not just those things, but that it's perversion in the sexual realm, that I will do what I want. I will take two wives. It's complete perversion from what they knew well, knew so well. You know, the debates we're having today, as ridiculously illogical as they are about marriage, and as much as everybody knows in their conscience that they've been made by God and that God made man and woman and that he made them to be one flesh. Think how close in proximity these generations lived to Adam and Eve. Adam is actually still alive when Lamech takes two wives. You see the perversion and the pride, don't you? You see the accumulation of self-pleasure and the perversion of dominance, not the kind of dominion that God wanted, the kind of dominion that man wants in his fallenness. And then notice that we're told these other little details about other descendants. Notice that Lamech had sons, and, and his sons, he, he had um, Jabal, and, and his brother was Jubal, and then he had Zillah. And notice that we're told about Jabal, that he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. And then Zillah had Tubal-Cain, and he was the forger of instruments of bronze and iron. Now, on the surface, it seems like, what's the big deal? This is good. They're benefiting society. Who doesn't want a tent? You're a wanderer. I want a tent. Have you ever watched any of these ridiculous survival shows? You're like, come on. You got a van. You got an RV right there. That'd be great if somebody was just like, I'm not building this. I'm going to the RV with the cameraman. <laughs> making tents, making music, making instruments and artwork, bronze and metal, making weapons, probably making a sword. We'll talk about that in a second. Making weapons. Um, you know, I think one of the things we can take away from this is even, even with um, the depravity of man, even with the, um, the pride of man and the selfishness of man and the supposed autonomy of man, that, that fallen, depraved men still produce things that benefit society, that God, by his common grace, still allows them to invent and discover, sometimes better. There's that old saying that 
you know, the devil has all the good music. It's not always true. We do have Bach and Beethoven and several others, a few others, not many. Um, but these are the descendants of Cain, and they're, 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 they're taking the things that God has created for his glory, and they're using them for themselves. They're using them to establish their own kingdoms. They're building the city of man with them. How do I know that? How do I know that they're building the city of man with them? Because I believe when it says that Tubal-Cain, the seventh from Cain, Tubal-Cain, when he makes instruments of bronze and iron and then sings a song, and it is a song. In the Hebrew, it's a song. He is probably taking the instruments that his, his, his family has invented, and he is writing this song of retribution. He has probably made a sword and killed the young man that has wounded him. Maybe they started sparring already. He has, in arrogance and pride, dealt unjustly with a young man. And, and he writes this song, and he says to his wives, and you can almost hear it as a song, can't you? Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77. And you think about all the music that's written today and how wicked the lyrics are and how proud and dishonoring every level, every style, every kind of art and music that is used to dishonor the living God. Every kind of art and music that is to exalt men. There's an artist, I really love his music. He's a folk um, musician and a very wicked man. He has a song called A Year in the Kingdom. And he had grown up in a Christian home and has apostatized and rejected Christianity. He has this song, I spent a year in the kingdom on my way through the garden. He's saying that this fallen wilderness is his garden. He is just like Tubal-Cain. He is saying this is the garden. And, and really what Cain's descendants are doing is they are trying to reconstruct Eden on their own, in their own strength, in their pride, in their arrogance. They're trying to create a pleasuresome, delightful atmosphere, an environment, a comfortable atmosphere. They are trying to get back to Eden, but they're not trying to get back to Eden God's way. They're not trying to do it by looking to the God of redemption who promised to send his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. They're not looking for the seed of the woman. They are looking for the city of man. And you know, as perhaps harsh as this sounds, the sad reality when we walk out these doors is that that's the world we live in. And that's the majority of people in this world, at every level of socioeconomic status, in every ethnic culture, with every genre of music, and every kind of um, uh, interest and hobby and activity and work, men and women are seeking to build the city of man. You know, it's striking, the comparison, secondly, the comparison between the city of man and the city of God. And as I said earlier, it doesn't seem like there's another city mentioned. It seems like the wicked are triumphing. It seems like they're making progress. It seems like they're the ones advancing. When we look around at a wicked world and we see men and women that hate Jesus and they're advancing and they're advancing and they own corporations and they're, they're famous and they're rich and they have all that their heart could desire and 
They're advancing and they're making progress. And this is what the psalmist is struggling with in Psalm 73 when he says, I was almost unfaithful to the Lord in the midst of the people. I almost said that I was envious of the wicked because they have so much and they prosper so much. And, and it, seems, it seems like the wicked are prospering. And it seems like they're the ones that have it good. They've got cities. They've got music. They've got art. They've got weapons. They've got tents. They seem to have all the innovation and everything necessary for a comfortable and secure life. And then, notice what we read in verse 25. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. Seth means appointed or placed. <clears throat> for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel for Cain killed him. Um, God is at work. You know, I love that. In these verses, you could almost, if you could, if you could step back from the picture in these verses, just step back, and you could, you could see the infinite God overlooking this, and everything we've just talked about and read about, and he is filling the heavens and the earth, and he is looking in, and he is surveying what Cain and his descendants think that they can get away with. And then as you step back and you look at what is, what, what is where is this heading? What is, what, what is going to come of this? And then you read that God gives Adam and Eve another son. And that God, by his grace, would not allow the kingdom and the city of men to triumph. And so he gives Adam and Eve, another son. He gives them Seth. And we know the storyline, don't we? Jesus comes from Seth. The Redeemer is in the loins of this appointed son. God is saying, I am not done. I am not done building my kingdom. I am not done. I will make good on my promise to send a Redeemer. I don't care how much men assert themselves and their pride and their arrogance. And by the way, this, is, this should be of great comfort to us as we watch the world around us raging against the Lord. God's not bothered. Psalm 2. Only time God ever laughs. Only time we're told God ever laughs. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his Christ. And then the psalmist says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds them in derision. Then he will speak in his wrath. He will distress them in his deep displeasure. And God is allowing the city of men to develop, and he is silently knitting together the hope of redemption in the womb of Eve. And Seth is born. And then Seth has children. And notice the end of this. Seth also had a son, and he called his name Enosh. And then here, here's, here's the other city. At that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. That's, that's the city of God. It's not with human strength, is it? Isn't that fascinating? If you took these two things and set them side by side, what's different about them? Besides the names, besides the events and the activities, here's what's different. Everything that Cain and his descendants are doing is done in the arm of human strength. And everything that Seth and his descendants are doing is in utter dependence upon God. How is the kingdom of God built? By God's grace in keeping his promise to send the Redeemer in raising up a replacement offspring for Adam and Eve and Abel and then in those descendants multiplying 
and coming together in corporate worship, doing what you're doing right now. You know where the kingdom of God is? It's right here. You don't have to believe it. It's true. Wherever men are calling on the name of the Lord, wherever his word is being preached, that's the kingdom of God. This is a city. The church is a city. We come to the end of the book of Revelation, and there's a city, and it's the church. It's the redeemed. Isn't that amazing? The first city is built by the depraved descendants of Cain. The glorious, lasting, everlasting city is built by God, and it's the church. Here's the remarkable thing. Listen very carefully. Cain named the first city after his son. God names his everlasting city after his son. He puts the name of Christ. The foundation, we're told, has the name of the lamb on it, that it is his city. God names that city after his son. His son builds that city. The rest of the Bible is how God is building that city through his son. I love in the book of Hebrews where the writer of Hebrews is exhorting a people who have had all their possessions taken away and all their goods taken away and they are um, they're tempted to go back to Judaism and turn back from Christ. And the writer, and this is the big thing he reminds them with, he says, here we have no continuing city. It's not interesting. He says, you don't have a city here, but we seek the city to come whose builder and maker is God. I hope you see that. I hope you see that here, and I love cities. I love food. I love art and music. And this is wonderful, by the way. In the building of God's city, he takes all the things that the wicked made, the wicked descendants of Cain made, and he uses them in the building of his city. He has a tabernacle. It's a tent. That points to the incarnation of Jesus, the covering in which God dwells. He takes a tent. One of, one of Cain's sons was the maker of tents. God dwelt in a tent. The worship space was a tent. And then God ordained musicians in the tabernacle in the temple. He ordained that he would be praised with instruments that Cain's descendants made. It's not remarkable that God's like, I'll take that. I'll take that. I ordained all this. It's all mine. I'll take that, and I will use all this. He ordained skillful artisans to use bronze and other metals in the construction of the temple. Come on, that is remarkable. Yes, that is remarkable. God is building his city. He is building his city. Now, here's what this means for us. If you are in Christ, if you know that you need redemption, if you know that you need constant grace from God, if you know that you, you need your sins forgiven and that you need to be healed, and if you are a person who is longing for deeper repentance and a person who is longing for communion with God, you know what that means? You are a part of God's city. That means that you are part of the city of God and you are heading for the city of God. And that's the best news you could ever have, that God has put the name of his son on that city and put his son's name on you. The Bible says if you're named with the name of Christ, you are blessed. And so let us depart from iniquity. And we ought to live as citizens of that city. We ought to live as become citizens of that city. You know, when I go to Edinburgh 
And Glasgow, I see the pride that they have in living in those cities. They're proud of it. They want to act like Glaswegians. They want to act in accord with whatever that city identity is. That's what we're to do. We are to act as citizens in Jesus' city. We are to act as citizens of heaven. We are to turn from wickedness. We are to have our pride leveled. We are to turn away from self-interest. We are to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. We are to pray, thy kingdom come, your will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. If you are in this place and you are still in the city of men and you don't know Christ and you don't long for that city to come and you are not expending your energy and your gifts and your talents and seeking to live as a citizen of that kingdom, come, come to him. The only thing you need for citizenship in the city of God is to come to Jesus by faith. You go to him and you say, Lord Jesus, I want to be a member of your city. When by grace, a member of Zion I am. When by grace, a member of Zion I am. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Our Father, our hearts are often weighed down in this world and in the love of the city of men, and we pray that you would forgive us. We pray that you would remove from our hearts all desire for an earthly kingdom and that you would make us long for entrance into your everlasting kingdom. We thank you that you have transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of your love. We thank you, our God, that you are building your city. Please use us in the construction of it. Make us zealous and diligent and prayerful and sacrificial and giving and to give of our time and our money and our energy and all that you have given us that we might see that kingdom advance.